Previously on Saratoga Lights. You should stick around town. I'm, I'm sure there's some honest work for you and your brother around here. I need a crew. One to watch the door, one to watch the room, and one to collect the money. William always says if we don't aim too high, we can't get caught. That sounds like someone with no ambition. He's ruthless. Leave my brother alone. We're living in violent times. Money! Now! I'm just saying, most outlaws either get caught or killed. Saratoga Lights, Season 2, Episode 4, Outlaw Living. In the distance, a small dot quickly appears on the crest of a hill, before disappearing just as fast. Out here, empty highways cut across the golden Texas landscape without any noticeable pattern or plan for miles and miles. The dot appears on the top of the next hill and has a more discernible shape. A truck, maybe blue, maybe black. Definitely beat up and smelling of diesel. Again, it disappears behind the next hill the roads are outlined with old telephone lines, signifying the skeletal remains of civilization, however sparse it may be in these parts. The truck continues to bob up and down with each hill, getting bigger and closer and louder. Once again, you're listening to KTX 93.9, bringing you music that makes your mama cry. The news desk of which I didn't even know we had until moments ago when they handed me this here piece of paper. Just gave me an update on that story we've all been following. See, officials warn that the men appear to be making their way east. While they can only confirm six robberies carried out by the bandits, other sources claim as many as 15 incidences over the past three months fit their MO. That's modus operandi for you college folks out there. A lot of mamas crying tonight, neighbors. Here's another song to help get them and all of us through the day. From that outlaw troubadour, Randy Reynolds. The old cow poke behind the wheel, squints as he sees a figure up ahead trying to hitch a ride. It's some frail looking lady in a dress and straw hat on the side of the highway. Someone her age shouldn't be out in this sun, he thinks to himself, as he pulls onto the shoulder. Where are you headed? The lady lifts her head. Wait, 
That's no lady. It's Lucas Pistol. He points his gun at the cowpoke and flashes him an eager grin. Get out of the truck. William Pistol approaches the cowpoke with his gun drawn and a green military bag slung over his shoulder. The driver is taken aback at what he just rolled into. His inaction prompts William to open the door, and the driver grudgingly gets out, backing away from William towards the back of the truck, his eyes fixed on the bandits, cursing his luck. He backs right into Bradford Molina. I apologize for the inconvenience, sir, but my associates and I are going to have to commandeer your vehicle. Pistol Brothers, strike again! Now, Lucas, that's not our name. I've told you that already. That's our name. Yes, that is you and your brother. But we formed a new partnership among the three of us. To continue identifying ourselves as the Pistol Brothers is exclusionary towards anyone who has not experienced the comfort of your mother's bosom, namely myself. I haven't heard any suggestions from you. The Molina Gang. Hey, that's exclusionary too. We don't need a name. Banditos del Diablo. How about the cross-dressing ninny? This was your idea. You said people are more likely to stop and help a lady. Why are you still wearing it? The deed is done. I think it looks good on you, Lucas. Thank you, Bradford. Stop encouraging him. Now, sir, you've probably gathered that we are criminals. As such, we'll need to take any folding money on your person in addition to your vehicle. But we are also men of character, so we will leave you with a few dollars of your own and point you in the direction of the nearest town, which I believe is that way, and wish you safe travels on the road ahead. Lucas starts looking through the truck for anything of value, opening the glove box and reaching down under the seats, the usual hiding places for valuables. He folds the bench seat forward and lets out a yelp before catching himself in front of him. Wrapped in a dirty old towel is the biggest machine gun he has ever seen. Take a gander at this, fellas. It looks like we picked the right mark. What else do you have in there? Bradford walks over to the cab of the truck to take a look. William tries to take control of the situation. Hand it over. No, finders keepers. You're gonna hurt yourself, Lucas. I know what I'm doing. I ain't playing, Lucas. Give me the gun. Finders, keepers. Possession's nine-tenths of the law. <laughs> Wrong. Possession as a legal test for ownership of property is worthless when there is clear and compelling documentation to the contrary. To wit, you clearly took the gun from its rightful owner in the presence of three witnesses. One of those witnesses is getting away, boys. Suddenly the brothers are aware of the distinct sound of boots against pavement. Their heads turn to the direction that Bradford is looking and see the cowpoke running quickly away from him. Lucas jumps into action. I'll get him! Easy, Tex. Lucas raises his newly acquired weapon to the horizon and takes aim. William reaches out to lower the barrel towards the ground, but before he can stop him, Lucas unloads the entire clip. Explosions punctuate the countryside as the muzzle flashes sporadically. Burnt gunpowder fills the air around him. After the noise dies down, the cowpoke stands still with his hands in the air and eyes pressed shut. Everyone is surprised, especially the cowpoke. 
He slowly opens his eyes and feels his torso, frantically running both hands over his body looking for any bullet holes. Satisfied that he's not bleeding out, and fairly certain he hasn't already been sent to the afterlife, he turns and runs from the gang of robbers. They watch him go free, amazed at the miracle that they think they just witnessed. Lucas looks down at the gun, steel barrel still hot to the touch, after spending all 20 rounds towards the target. M must be blanks. Nice aim. I had him in the crosshairs. Apparently you had your eyes closed. I dare say he'll have a greater appreciation for life after today. William nods and gets in the passenger seat, hoping to speed up their departure before anyone stumbles upon them or their victim and starts asking questions. Lucas is watching the cowpoke run as he grows smaller and smaller against the horizon, his hat frantically bobbing up and down against the blue Texas sky. The truck starts up and Bradford lays on the horn, breaking Lucas from his daze and compelling him to jump into the bed of the truck. He settles in and pats the hood of the cab. As they pull out onto the highway and kick up dust, Lucas can just barely make out the figure of the cowpoke in the distance. A campfire burns low, illuminating a tiny portion of the vast forest that envelops this part of East Texas. On a couple of disregarded logs that were felled long ago by some timber tycoon, William and Lucas sit in silence with only the occasional clinking of a wooden spoon against a pot as William heats up their meager dinner. The sun is sinking in the west The cattle go down to the stream The red wing settles in his nest It's time for a cowboy to dream William stirs the pot again, trying to keep the beans from burning as he listens to his brother's warbly tenor. Purple light in the canyon That's where I long to be With my three good companions Just my rifle, my pony and me. I'm sick of beans. Beans is what we got. There's gotta be some critters roaming around in these woods. Let's go catch something and cook up a feast tonight. I think shooting at squirrels would draw plenty of attention to our place of hiding, don't you? We don't need our pistols. Let's just sharpen up some of these sticks. Hunt like we did when we were kids. Just eat your beans. No, I'm sick of you telling me what to do. Always tell me to shut up, do this, do that. In case you've forgotten, Lucas, this is what you wanted. You want to be an outlaw, this is outlaw living. Get used to it. 
I didn't want this. I wanted money and a warm meal every night. Well, again, you failed to think of the consequences of your rash decisions. What do you mean? I mean that now we're stuck out here on the lam. There's no going back. We get what we get, and tonight it's a can of beans. All because you didn't think what would happen, we knocked over that bar. I thought about all the money that we walked out with. I thought about you and me getting a better life than before. Yeah, you're like a dumb puppy that keeps going back to its asshole owner that's hitting him with a stick. He filled your head with all this nonsense and you still believe him. He hadn't delivered on anything he promised you, but you're still out here following him around. I'm not following him around. I'm forging a path in this world for the Pistol Brothers. You and me. Like always. <laughs> there is no you and me no more. But we're brothers. I'm here because you dragged me out here. I've always tried to protect you from others, but I can't protect you from your own stupidity anymore. And you know what? I'm done trying. They hear footsteps behind them. The loud thud of Bradford's size 12s crunching the leaves and brush underfoot. So eat your beans and shut up. Bradford comes into view and sits opposite William across the fire, beer in hand. Sensing the tension, he looks at the two of them and holds his tongue. After moments of silence, Lucas storms off. William watches him go, then returns to the beans he's cooking. Saratoga is a town began with the promise of healing and transformation. The discovery of sulfur springs in the area led one enterprising young man to formulate a business plan. He could market to the masses the healing powers that were to be found in the water tucked away in the woods of East Texas, fully capitalizing on the growing trend at the time of hydropathy and the belief that water had mystical powers. He built cottages and shops and campsites and even a hotel to accommodate the hordes of travelers that were going to flock to the area for the baptism of the natural springs. Saratoga was to be emblematic of the future, of rebirth, of new life. And he himself would be emblematic of the self-made man, securing his own future and that of his family for generations to come through foresight and sheer tenacity. But nobody ever came. Saratoga instead became emblematic of the death that visited so many bus towns across the state, whose broken-down infrastructure and dwindling population are the skeletal remains of what once was a bright and prosperous future. It's on this decrepit main street that Lucas finds himself wandering tonight. In the window pane of a long-ago abandoned building, he sees a dim reflection of himself. His face looks worn, wrinkled. A couple of gray hairs sprout out of his chin that betrays youth. The man he sees reflected back at him doesn't match how he views himself in his mind's eye. But he concedes that's the very nature of time. Always moving, whether you wanted to or not. Across the street, Lucas's attention is drawn to a neon sign advertising the Church of Christ. The blue glow from the burning gas illuminates the sidewalks and lights a path to the door of the storefront, 
drawing Lucas inside. There are no other congregants at this time of night, for which Lucas is thankful. Just a few rows of empty pews with songbooks strewn about. Lucas sits, observing the silence and peace that surrounds him. He pulls a small Bible out of his pocket, one that's been weathered and faded by years of use, passed down to him from his mother. Is there anything I can help you with this evening? Lucas looks up and sees a bearded man standing over him, a preacher of some kind, wearing a finely pressed pearl snap shirt with an intricately embroidered flower on the shoulder. The open collar of the shirt reveals a bandana cinched tight around the neck, covering himself all the way to his beard. No, thank you. The preacher sits on the pew next to Lucas, his stiff body moving slowly and bracing for the discomfort of landing on the hard wooden surface. He settles in and crosses his legs to relieve some of the stress on his bones. My mom used to take me to church every week. She always said there was a reason for everything, and if we put our faith in God, he would direct our footsteps and make our path clear. Proverbs 3. She sounds like a godly woman. She was. Do you still go to church? I think that was my mother's biggest regret, that she somehow failed God because I stopped going. Children are a reflection of their parents. Your mother's faith was important to her, so she wanted it to be important to you. She believed to her very last breath that me and my brother could be saved. What do you believe? I believe too much has been done said for God to look too kindly on me. Are you familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba? He's described as a man after God's own heart, and yet he used his power as king to be with a woman who was not his wife. You're trying to say I can be forgiven? No, I'm trying to say that the road back to God is not without its fair share of pain. Do you remember the rest of the story? David was found out by God and his child died as a result. Is that supposed to make me drop down on my knees and pray? Suffering and penance? It's supposed to make you think. David wept for days while his child was sick. He stopped eating, prayed for intervention from the Lord, but the child still died. When David heard the news, he rose from his place of mourning and ate, then went to worship at the house of the Lord. One of the servants questioned him on it. How can you cry so fervently while the child lives, yet return to worship once the child dies? He said, Will my tears bring him back to life? Of course not. But someday I will go to be with him in heaven. So, you can sit here in this church bemoaning your current sufferings and troubles, or you can look to the promise of an everlasting home beyond and make it right. I don't know if I can make it right. Do you want to? Of course I do. More than anything. You're not so far gone. Something brought you here tonight, seeking some sort of peace. God has a peace that passes all understanding. Thank you, preacher. Lucas rises from his seat and places the Bible back into his coat, lightly patting his breast pocket to ensure it's safe keeping. You'll be in my prayers this evening, brother.
On the other side of town, in a comfortable home, brightly lit by a combination of electric thrift store lamps and candles of various sizes, Avit Sewell sits at the dinner table, eagerly watching his wife pull the cornbread out of the oven. Well, I learned how to twiddle my thumbs now like a champion. Did you see that the McAllisters moved up to Dallas? Dallas? Why would anyone want to live in Dallas? You have to go where the work takes you. Suppose so. Heather said that Bruce's grocery is going to be closing too. I heard that as well. We're going to have to go all the way to Beaumont to get our food now. Well, there is that little market basket over in Sour Lake. Sour Lake doesn't know their apples from their apricots. <laughs> Truly, you'll go in there looking for some whipping cream for your soup, and they'll supply you with some ice cream instead. Well, I wouldn't mind that. Avit wipes his mouth and goes to answer the phone. Sewell residence. Oh, hey, Sheriff. Maggie rolls her eyes and starts eavesdropping on the conversation. Whenever he calls their house, it's always because he's too drunk or otherwise incapacitated to handle some law enforcement matter. And Avit, ever noble and duty-bound, is more than willing to take up the slack for him. Other deputies would just not pick up the phone at dinner, but not Avid. And that's why I love him so, she thinks to herself unabashedly. Just would be nice to have a quiet evening together uninterrupted. Avid hangs up the receiver and returns to the dining room. Instead of sitting back down at the table, he grabs the belt and holster that's draped across the back of the chair and fastens it around his waist the solid wooden grip of his service revolver bearing his surname. Maggie watches with the look of feigning ignorance about them not being able to finish their meal together. Everything okay? Report came through of some vagrants loitering out behind Casey's shop. Why can't Hardigan respond to that call? Does he not know that you are off duty and in the company of your lovely wife? If I'm going to be elected sheriff one day, the public needs to see that I'm available to him. <laughs> because Hardigan's always available to the public. He hasn't responded to a call in nigh on a decade. Avid leans down and kisses Maggie. I'll return shortly, Magnolia. Keep the cornbread warm for me. This was in Texas. Saratoga Lights is written and directed by Randall LaRue. Audio recording and engineering by Matthew David Rudd. Music by Randy Reynolds. This episode featured the voice talents of Brian Villalobos, Freddie Hines, Matt Fitzgerald, Brooke Chalmers, Jordan Merritt, Ryan Colt Levy, and Matthew David Rudd. Until next time. Inventive, bold, revolutionary. 
Those were the values of Rufus Outlaw, a true Texas hero. Everyone knows the story of the gunsmith born into slavery and how his weapon eventually helped that beheaded president free the slaves. And we could think of no one that better personified that forward-thinking, trailblazing spirit when it came time to name our barbecue sauce. Rich in flavor, bold in taste, the Outlaw original has been a staple around the campfire and the dinner table for 75 years. Want something even more revolutionary? Try it with a can of our Outlaw baked beans. Slow cooked to perfection with the plumpest beans and our signature blend of spices, they make the perfect pair. Serve together for breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and the whole family will be saying those classic words that Rufus was known for out on the range. Beans is what we got. Get them at your local market basket. <laughs> Excuse me.